You are listening to the Wisdom of Wealth podcast. My name is Ryan Haley. And my name is Kyle Kempers. Whether you're at the top of your game or you're just getting started, we are here to add as much value as we possibly can to your financial education. If you want to find out more, head on over to wisdomofwealth.co. Well, welcome to the Wisdom of Wealth podcast. If you are just hopping in with us, we are actually in the third week of a series that includes video. So uh, I would strongly suggest that you find the link in the show notes and uh, check out this video on YouTube to be able to follow along with the spreadsheets that we will be referencing throughout this video. It'd be pretty difficult to follow it if you only had the audio. Uh, Today, as we mentioned last week, Ryan and I have a special guest on the show. Uh, Ryan, would you introduce our guest to our audience? Yeah, this is exciting. So um, our guest this week is another member of our team here at Unbridled Wealth, who his background is more in uh, business consulting and uh, particularly in the agricultural space. And he has been structuring some policies and these applications in ways that I actually haven't yet. And that's why we thought it would be cool to show this. So uh, Joe Burgess is our guest this week, and he is... um, He's got his hands in a lot of pots. He's got an amazing skill set on multiple levels. And when he understood the value of how this infinite banking concept works using cash value from a life insurance policy to fund uh, business deals, he really hit the ground running. And um, so last week we talked about how you could use it for investments. And we went through that whole um, model. This week is going to be showing what Joe is actually doing in real life with one of his businesses and um, what's different about this is that the policy is actually owned by the company itself. So this is called company-owned life insurance or COLI, and there's all kinds of ways you can structure it. In the last week, we showed uh, a client of mine who was a personally owned policy he was using to um, deploy capital into real estate investments. In this week, Joe's going to share with us using the policy to uh, actually deploy into the business itself, and that's owned by the company. So, Joe, welcome to the show. It is great to have you on. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Cal. Super excited to be here. It's been a, it's been a long time coming, so it's great. Absolutely. So do you want to give us any other um, commentary or background before we just jump into the numbers here? Yeah, yeah. No, I'd love to. Um, so, again, because that that's really most critical is what are we trying to accomplish with this? And so just to give a little bit, this is based on a on a orchard project. And so it would be helpful probably just to know a little bit of how the mechanics of an orchard works. So we're specifically growing almonds in this case. And um, the lifespan of an almond tree is 25 years or can be up to 30 years. And so um, when we are looking at this as an investment chunk, we're basically looking in a 30 year chunk. And so <clears throat> that's where it's gonna be a little bit different than uh, some of your other investment projects. So essentially what we do um, is we gather a bunch of limited partners uh, to invest money in. So at this specific project right here, we raised about 1.5 million and um, we gather that and then we go lease a big chunk of dirt. So this was about 155 acres that we leased for this project. And again, um, we kind of pull all the expenses up front to grow those trees out for the first four years. And so to understand, uh, we'll put the trees in the ground we get our first harvest. So there's really no cash flow year one, two, three, or four. 
And uh, year five is really where we see that significant cash flow come in as those trees are then in, in almost full production, but basically in money-making production. And um, then we start running from there. So any specific questions in that or... I think that that's where, um, if you're looking here on the video at column F, <clears throat> you see that there's that $0 for the first four years. I'm assuming, Joe, that's because you're not generating cash flows from the orchard deal, and that's why really? you're not showing it coming back in. And to just add a little bit more background to what you're looking at here, again, starting on the left side, you've got the year. So year one, they're putting 150000 of premium into the policy. And in that, uh, at the end of that year, the cash value uh, on the illustration is going to be 132,000, and then you can borrow 95% of that cash value to put into the deal. So that's that 127,000 or so. And then in this case, we're assuming an annual interest rate on the policy loan of four and a half percent. And as we talked about last time, what's not shown on here, and what we didn't show last time, and we'll probably do that in a future episode is the tax advantages, which are significant, right? Because that cash value growth in the policy, if it's structured correctly as it is here as a non-MEC, then that policy growth is tax-free. And then if you're borrowing from the policy, that 4.5% interest, which in that column E is you know the 5,700, then 12,000, that interest starts to add up, but you're getting a tax deduction if that's used for a qualified business um, trade or activity, which in this case it would be. And that's generally your highest and best interest deduction. So you're getting a deduction, which is not shown here. What's also not shown is the tax-free growth of the policy in tax equivalent terms. And that can add up to quite a bit. And then, um, of course, we've got the death benefit over on the right, column H, which is over $6 million to start with. That's good because in a lot of these things, you know, having key man insurance for the corporation and or the limited partner investors is important. And so... That's one thing that I've been thinking a lot more about in this private placement space with people like Joe and other syndicators who are raising capital. It really is almost more like you want to bet on the jockey even more than the horse in some cases, because it's critical you have a really <laughs> solid sponsor operator general partner. And so in this case, Joe is obviously a really good, really good jockey, a little tall for a jockey, but uh, you know, okay. he's good. Uh, I'm going to assume that you have a good well-balanced center of gravity here. So yeah. um that's, I think, important, Joe, and I don't know if you have any other follow-up comments to that. No, I, I would say, yeah, to not veer off too much, but I would say the the jockey in nine times out of 10 is the most critical thing to invest in. Um, and in this case, you know, I'm not actually the insured. This is the, the lead on the project that's the insured in this situation. So again, we put the money on him. He's the most critical to success of this endeavor. And yeah, I think it's so important. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I'm in a lot of different businesses and that's the, really the biggest key between a successful and non-successful business is the, is the jockey, is the, the people that are in it. Way more than their ability to get into a market or an opportunity is who's actually doing it. Um, because right. people, yeah, passionate people can make stuff happen when the market says it can. And, you know, unpassionate people can let stuff fall apart, even if the market says it shouldn't. So, um, yeah. And speaking of markets falling apart, it's kind of a timely conversation. We kind of hit on this before we recorded. Uh, if you're listening to this right now, we're recording this on March 15th of 2023. And for anybody who's been following the news, there has been a number of pretty big um, shakings to the banking and financial industry. And 
So having a really solid uncorrelated investment, in this case, almonds, that really isn't going to have too much bearing on what's happening with, you know, the S&P 500. Um, I would say a critical aspect to this too, is the fact that you are putting your money in this case into a very conservative, uh, strong financial institution. And we talked about this last time at the end of the previous episode is that unlike a bank like, you know, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank and several others just today, Credit Suisse uh, had some problems. And so uh, when you're putting your money into a long time, well-established, financially strong and conservative mutual carrier who has been paying dividends for, you know, hopefully hundreds of years, then your capital in your bank account is a lot safer than if you were in a speculative uh, financial institution where you're not sure if you can actually get that money out. So there's multiple layers of risk mitigation and contingency planning built in. And Joe, I'm curious for the death benefit on this one, since it's company owned, does that death benefit, unlike a personal policy like we talked about last time, where it's you know the typical thing most people are familiar with, where if the insured dies, their you know wife and kids or their dependents, whoever, are going to get that payout. How did you structure it, and how can that be used to a business owner's advantage, and also importantly to a limited partner or passive investor's advantage in a structure like this? Yeah, absolutely. So it basically goes back to the buy sell agreement, and and that's a really critical piece in in, in setting up any company. And so this death benefit is really the funding vehicle for the buy sell. So essentially, the way it's set up, at least in this specific, is if the insured or the one of the key people, which um, the insured in this case is one of the general partners of the business. So there's two general partners. And so, and then there's a, so there's some redundancy there, meaning that one, one of the general partners can continue to function, even if the other, um, something was to happen to him. <clears throat> but then this death benefit essentially is going to fund out the buy sell agreement. So, um, if something happens to the insured, he passes away, that $6 million goes directly back into the company and then is basically used to, um, buy all the limited partners out of the endeavor, and then the business is to be sold after that. So that's wow. kind of the way that it's basically meant to just unravel upon this, uh, the insurance death. So that's great. So you're protecting the company itself. And what I think is critical that you just touched on is you're also protecting the limited partner investors who are not part of the business other than having put up the capital and getting a passive return. That's, I think, a really important aspect as you're taking risk in these kinds of uh, private market opportunities. Um, you know, you're making a pretty significant bet on one specific operator, one deal, a certain model. And again, that's mitigated if you have a really high quality team like you guys do here. But again, just God forbid if something happened to that person, um, that is another level of risk mitigation that is a question I'm starting to ask now as I'm looking into private placements and syndication deals myself as an investor is do you have key man insurance? Because again, like you said, Joe, you could have the best structure in the world, but if that critical person, that key man or woman, the jockey falls the off jockey the horse, falls off the horse and breaks their neck, the horses just might yeah. be running around wild, bumping into walls or running the wrong way. Who knows what's going to happen? So that yeah. is a really important aspect that I think is again why we wanted to have Joe on this week because this is a different structure than we talked about last time. And you know, you can do a combination of of many different things, but I think that in itself, that death benefit, which we kind of don't really give a whole lot of um, attention to 
um, is really, really important in a situation like this. So you've got a $6 million plus death benefit to start with, which again is tax-free and distributed if something were to happen. But other than that, I think, again, we're really focusing on more the cash value, the liquidity, and how much excess return this policy is generating. And I know, Joe, we had talked earlier, it's it's a bridge too far, and it's beyond the scope of this interview to show all the details of the pro forma of the investment return itself, but it was pretty compelling. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about conservatively anywhere from 15 to 25% net IRR to investors after that you know, 20 or 30 year period. So that's yeah. all going to be in addition to everything we're showing. And we're just, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, this, what you're showing here is just the excess return of the policy itself, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, I guess one last thing on the death benefit, uh, I'm es essentially, if something happened within those first five years, you're going to get a 4X return on your investment. You know, we raised 1.5 million and it's going to give 6 million back into the company. So um, I don't know many investors that would be you know, really tragically affected by a 4X return on their money in <laughs> one or two years. Um, yeah, right? we're not hoping anything bad to happen to the jockey, but we're, no, just we're not. That yeah, is a significant but, return. Yeah. But yeah, but we have options, right? And we right. may all decide, hey, we're all friends. We love this. We've got $6 million. Let's hire a new jockey. And and you keep on running. Um, but this gives us that just it gives us flexibility and gives us options. And so that's just it's it's huge. And like you say, we don't necessarily talk enough about it, but it, it really is because it seems like it's forever out there, but it, it really isn't. Um, right. So so why don't you yeah. walk us through just you talked about how, you know, the, the again, this just like everything we talk about, this is all a long term play, right? We're not it's not a get rich quick scheme. As you can see, you're going to be slightly behind that first year. You put in 150, you've got 132,000 in cash value and about 127,000 that's available immediately to borrow. So you're a little bit behind, but and then the orchards themselves are not really producing a financial return until year five. So you're, you're kind of, again, you're capitalizing your banking system, you're investing in the deal itself. And you've got, in this case, you know, a patient investor is going to get paid very well, but it is important to understand that you're not going to really have any positive net cash flows other than if something horrible happened and with that death benefit payout, but assuming right. all goes well, you're going to be a little bit behind um, for those first four years, but talk us through the rest of this return profile where things really start to get interesting here in year five. Yeah, totally. And and I guess just one thing to mention in this, I know this may be kind of unfamiliar for most people that aren't familiar with investing in ag, but the concept of basically putting all your money in and just letting it sit there for four or five years is very normal. Like that's just the business model. So the, the idea of, you know, I know a lot of people kind of hesitate, like, man, that's a lot of money to put up and just sit. But, but that just is reality of what it is. So it, it just takes time for a permanent product orchard to really grow, kind of grow into maturity. And so, so that's a good point. I just want to hit on real quick, Joe, yeah. is that would you say it's fair to assume that anybody who's involved with this project, whether the GPs or the LPs, the investors, that they're probably, again, like we talked about last episode, they're starting off in a really good position financially, strong cash flow, strong liquidity, where they aren't depending on the policy or the investment to be paying their monthly expenses. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. No, right. all these, so that's just all these are really, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. As far as what the investor is putting in, totally. Yeah. That's, that's money they don't need to see back for five years. Right. So that's important. And again, patience pays off. 
um, in this case. And I think that, you know, structuring, <clears throat> coming back to the financial planning element of things, um, you know, this is great for a long-term play that I think has some really important diversification aspects. You know, when you're talking about agricultural and a, a potentially non-correlated or inversely correlated investment, which just means that it doesn't depend on the ups and downs of the traditional asset markets. But um, you can also start to supplement that with if you did need some cash flow. There are some other deals that I'm investing in that give really strong cash flows. There are shorter periods, so it's kind of the opposite. But if you match that up, where you're getting good cash flow at the beginning and then it's kind of done after seven years or something, then this one comes in and that could be, you know, uh, a diversification aspect to your capital deployment strategy. And so again, can't emphasize enough the importance of really good financial planning and strategy on the front end to make all this work. Cause we don't do this stuff in a vacuum, but again, without going, you know, off on a bunch of rabbit trails, um, having established that, that these people are all okay with waiting five years to see any kind of return, then it starts to get pretty compelling, as we can see here. So why don't you walk us through uh, what we're seeing on the screen here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the most important things to consider in this scenario is that I am using cash flow to fund this policy, meaning that, you know, like you said, 150 grand goes in year one. And I'm going to borrow 126 of that, meaning whatever the whatever the the available cash value is, I'm we're taking the max loan on it because I want to pull that money back out and put it to work. So this money is getting spent on just normal, ordinary upkeep and cultural costs of the orchard, and and so that's probably one of the, the things that's really different about this scenario versus some others where I'm just setting uh, kind of my my excess or my net, you know, kind of my bucket over there for a rainy day. This is very much, we're hustling this policy as hard as it'll move. Um, so that's why and we're basically- That's basic important together. too, Joe. I, I think that's a great point you just brought up because a lot of people feel like they, they're they like, oh, I don't want to start borrowing. And it's like, look, don't, don't borrow if you're not going to get a return or some kind of tax deduction. Mm -hmm. Like you can do that, but really infinite banking is meant to be used to generate wealth on a net basis. So, but if that's the case, like we have here, that's what this is for, right? Don't hesitate to use full advantage of that cash value. And that's what you're showing yeah. here. You're borrowing max loans every single time. And that's, I think, Joe, if I got these numbers correct, that four and a half percent APR on the interest times the 127,000 or so, that's what equals the 5,700 in interest, right? And then right. That, yeah. just so on and so forth for the rest of those columns. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I will caution, like with this specific business model, we don't, we don't need the, the kind of the, the safety bucket. We've got that in another vehicle and another mechanism in this situation. Right. And so, you know, in our other businesses, you know, I've got, oh, we've got about 18 different policy structures within our business network like this of similar size. And they're all different structured. They're all kind of for different intentions, different purposes. So, so what, I'm totally comfortable keeping this policy maxed out and having zero that I can go borrow against because that's just how this one is designed to function. So just wanted to make that clarity because this could feel a little reckless if this was, you know, it, it would just depend on, you know, it really depends on the business scenario, the cash flow model and what you need it to be, right? So yeah. just want to make sure I clarify that. Joe, what percentage of the cash flow that you guys are using operationally are you running through this policy? Really good question. So at this point, um, we raised 1.5 million out the gate. We spend about 600 grand of that right away. And then I've got about 500,000 in cash sitting in the bank. And so 
it it's going to be right about 25 to 30% of our cash flow for those first five years. And then it drops down to um, the base, which we can talk through that in a second. But yeah, it's about 20 to 25% those first five years. Great. Yeah. Great Thanks. question, Kyle. And and I appreciate your explanation previously, Joe, that, yeah, again, this is, we're not doing this in a vacuum that comes back to what we talked about, the holistic planning and strategy. And there's a lot more that is not shown on this spreadsheet. And again, we just, we could, we want to make things manageable to understand, but please understand that there's like, I sat down and I looked at this spreadsheet with Joe. And just like I told you guys in the last episode, if you were to see the spreadsheets behind the scenes that we're not showing with the level of planning analysis, stress testing, et cetera. I mean, it's <laughs> overwhelming if you don't know what that is. That's why we're not showing it, but please do understand that. Like Joe said, they've got contingencies. They've got 500 K of cash. They've got 18 different policies. And as Kyle said, you know, it's important to understand how much you're putting in because at every point, you know, Kyle and I had a early episode, we talked about margin of safety and how important that is. And so that's, you know, you want to be, conservatively structured. And uh, again, it's just hard to show all the nuances of that. But I think those are some really important caveats because otherwise you're right, Joe, people are like, man, that you sure are leveraging yourself pretty heavily. What if the cash flows from the business don't come in? Like you've got multiple levels of risk mitigation built in that's, you know, beyond the scope of the spreadsheet. So I think those are really good um, caveats and kind of background for, you know, what we're looking at here. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one thing to note, um, about 35% of annual revenue, that's the max you can actually physically run through a policy uh, with the carrier we tend to use. So um, yeah, just, just to note that, right? So we're, we're not quite at that max, but we're close on this specific project because of its cash flow. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a different um, formula for how to determine coverage limits and premiums and all that stuff, which is, again, beyond the scope of this um, episode. It's it's different when you're looking at a personally owned policy versus a company owned policy. And, and those are important, again, front end strategy and planning considerations. But to just review, you're raising 1.5 million in this deal from the equity or limited partners. And of that 1.5 million, you're putting 150,000 of that. So basically 10% of the raise is going into the deal. And then you immediately spent 600K in year one of which 126 is coming from the policy. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, beautiful. Yeah, so again, that, that still leaves a big chunk of cash in the bank. And so over those first four or five years, you know, we're going to put about 750. So almost 50% of our initial raise we'll put through the policy. Um, and again, we're not doing that all at once. We're doing that kind of staggered year over year. So, um, again, okay. I think that was, a, I, maybe I didn't understand that. That's so you have the one hundred and fifty from the raise and then you still got the 500 in the bank back to Kyle's question, which is a really good one is you're, you're funding this, these ongoing premiums of one hundred and fifty for that first five years. Part of that, or I'd say probably most of it is being funded from the 500 K that's just sitting in the bank account to start with. Uh, initially, but again, it's cash flow, right? So even though I'm, um, so the, the, the model of this, we spend a hundred, all of 1.5 million we'll spend in the first five years. Right. And so that's why the numbers don't line up because again, I'm taking some of that 600 K that we spent and I put it into the policy and then I immediately borrow it back out. Meaning technically I've only lost access to about 20,000 in that first year transition. And then the next year it's only lose access about 10 grand. 
And then it really starts to get smaller, 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 really quickly, right? As far as the amount of money that I have access to. And I think that has to do with the difference in how you structured this policy versus what we typically do. And what I showed in the last one, usually we do 80% paid up addition, 20% base premium, which we talked about in previous episodes. Joe, because of the way that they need um, even higher access to liquidity, you're structuring this differently where you're actually doing about a 90% allocation to the paid up addition and 10% to the base, which is why you see after your five, it goes from 150 down to 15,000. So yeah, that's correct. another thing that you're, you're getting an extreme efficiency to the policy design in those early years. It's it's a trade-off, you know, and which is again too much to go into at this point. But it, in this particular context, <clears throat> excuse me, this particular context, that's important because you want to have as much liquidity as you possibly can to put into the project itself. And so um, that's, I think, another important thing to note about this is, you know, if you go back to our first episode in this series, we talked about how the difference of the base versus the PUA, uh, the paid-up addition is kind of the cash value supercharger. And so depending on your situation, even that structure, there's not a one size fits all of like, you should always do 80, 20 or 90, 10 or 60, 40 or whatever it is, you know, it, it really depends on the situation. So as you guys Absolutely. can see over and over, we keep hitting on these episodes. It's not enough to be really good at structuring the policies themselves, although that's a non-negotiable critical, critical aspect. I'd say it's even more important to look at the bigger picture of what makes sense in that particular situation. And that's how you've structured this one. That's a different uh, kind of setup than what we talked about last time. Yeah, no, that's, that's so well said. Yeah, Ryan, it's, it's so critical to, to work with a good strategist that really has an idea and, and then you just bang the numbers back and forth until you find the sweet spot. And so, you know, I, I would brand this as a really efficient policy. You can see those first five years, we put 750,000 into the policy and we've got access. You can see in that column C access to set our cash values at 742. And so I think that's really good. And again, like you say, that's what we want is access to cash is critical early access to cash is critical in this scenario. So, yeah. And this uh, policy, this product specifically <clears throat> we're using with a particular carrier is specifically designed for maximum guaranteed early cash value access. And yeah. that's, that's another aspect is that, you know, depending on the situation, one policy or product might be um, better than another, not just in general, but for, you know, it's all dependent on the specific use case. So in this case, you know, you might be getting, you might have a policy that gives you a higher non-guaranteed long-term return than what we're showing here, but this policy design and the product specifically is really designed for guaranteed early maximum cash value access. You're not going to have uh, as much on the non-guaranteed dividends in later years. As you can see, the base premium drops down significantly, which limits how much you can continue to put in. But again, those are all trade-off decisions. You have to really be um, pretty sophisticated and well-educated to understand on multiple levels. So again, I think the color commentary here is, is really helpful. Um, but with all that said, Show us how things are happening after you put in the initial capital raise, you're funding the policy through the money in the bank, and then eventually starting year five now, you're starting to put in, um, it looks like some principal repayments, right? So that's where you got those zero first years because there's no cash flow from the orchard. Starting year five, the orchard is now kicking off some pretty good cash flow. Why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, totally. So Basically, what, what we decided to do in this scenario was basically take 10% of our net from the investment so and apply that towards paying 
interest first and the remainder just going after principal. So, ten, um, so this orchard's going to net around 600 grand a year. And so we're just taking 10% of that. So that'd be 60,000. And the reason we're doing that is so it doesn't drastically affect the returns for our investors. <clears throat> we really want to protect that. Um, and then we begin to start paying that principal back down low. Again, we've got flexibility. So if something happens, our crop is down a little bit, well, we only have to pay the interest and the, you know, um, the principal is optional. So that's a huge thing for us to have that flexibility. But yes. basically in this scenario, we begin to take that 60 grand and kind of split it again. We'll pay 32,000. That's the, that's going to be our interest on that $712,000 loan. And one thing you'll notice is our, this is the loan value grows to 712. And then it begins to come back downhill as we begin to pay that principal back down. And again, now this orchard is in cash flow. It's doing well. It's going to begin to kind of pay itself back off. So, so that's good. I just want to hit on that real quick, Joe, because if you're looking at these numbers, they at first, it seems like they don't add up, but, and again, you're not seeing outside this spreadsheet, the actual cash flows, but that's yeah. important to know if by year five, yeah, you didn't get anything the first four years, but now you're saying you've got net cash flows from the investment itself after expenses and everything else of 600,000, which is pretty compelling. And of the yeah. 600,000, you're taking 60,000. And if you're seeing how those numbers add up, the 60,000 is the combined total payment. That's 32,000 in uh, interest. And in this case, about 28,000 in principal repayment. Those two columns, E and F, add up to the 60,000, which is the 10% of the 600. And so that's how if you're looking at these, these numbers add up. So there's an amortization. Um, that's a great point you just said, Joe, that these are unstructured loans. I can't emphasize enough. Kyle and I talked um, a while ago about some pretty innovative, um, you know, lending products for borrowers for homes and the power of being able to self amortize your own loan schedule and have total flexibility is so critical, especially if you're a business owner with uncertain cash flows and liquidity. Um, that optionality is huge because it serves two things. Number one, if there's a cash flow crunch, like you said, Joe, the orchards maybe not throwing off as much net cash flow as you projected. Well, you don't have a you don't have a fixed, rigid payment structure. You can choose to toggle between if, when, and how much principal and interest you repay, and then um, you can also pay more than that and save on interest. But again, we're we're using a reasonable expectation and projection here. But those are really really important points that go into the strategy. Yeah, I know that's great, and 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 again, yeah, the the essentially to follow the math, um, the column over here in column G, this is basically balance. So this is available money that I can go borrow against again if I need to, and this is essentially this project was designed to wean itself off of our secondary um, redundancy nets, kind of funding nets by year ten, and so you can see as we go down to year ten, um, this is essentially. Original cash value would be over here in column C. We've got just shy of a million. Um, outstanding loan at that point is down to 560,000, meaning that I've got 380 that I could go borrow again if I needed to and for by year 10. So I used my secondary kind of backup for those first 10 years, but I know that, hey, at this point, this orchard now is fully self-sustained, stand on its own. It's not a liability for anything else. It's really fully structured by itself. So one thing to note there. 
Yeah, great point. And that's where you're seeing the balance of that cash value. That's what we call the net cash value, right? The total right. cash value minus the outstanding loan. That's how much you would have available to borrow against if you wanted to. And that's why as you're repaying that loan principal from the policy with the cash flows from the orchard, then you're saving on interest. So you're seeing that annual interest is going down after looks like year five. And that's because you're paying interest on the outstanding balance. So you're improving both your liquidity and your cash flow by paying down that loan with tons of flexibility if you need it. And so it looks like here, Joe, you have entirely paid off the full loan by year 22, basically. You're, you're pretty much, that's all paid off. At this point, you've got now looks like one point five six about 1.6 million of net cash value and you're still putting in you don't have to but in this case you modeled out so it looks like 26 years of base premiums and yep. then um and if you were to do another level of analysis you'd see that the annual cash flow now just from the policy like not even including the orchard the cash flow from the policy is significant is many multiples of the premium that you're putting in and you're not going to be able to see that on this it's spreadsheet about, it's about 90k and yeah. in column C, you'll see between year 22, 23, that that growth in that policy is, is pretty close to about $90,000. Yeah, great, great point. And that's where, again, sometimes it's what you don't see on the illustrations and the things that can be even more important than what you do see. And we're, we're trying to hit a sweet spot of giving you enough information without overwhelming you with like a million lines of, on a spreadsheet. But that's, yeah. So if you're interested in what that um, cash value increases, you're putting about 14,000 a premium in at this point, the loans paid off. And in that case, you know, if you do that math there between year 22, you got about 1.83 million of cash value. The next year you got 1.92. So your cash value increased by about a hundred thousand dollars and you only put in 14,000 of premium. So that's a pretty good annual return, tax-free, very conservatively, just inside the policy, not to mention the orchard's still probably producing at this point, right, Joe? And that's the goal, man. Hopefully it's still killing it. Yeah. So can yeah. Can you amazing. um Joe, can you give us some color around why you switched to the base premiums after year five? What were some of the major things that were happening? I understand that we're also looking to be as efficient as possible inside this policy, but what, why are you switching from that, um, that 150 in year five? And then how's that benefiting you? And what are some of the big landmarks that are happening as we go down this, the spreadsheet? Yeah, totally. Um, probably that. So basically I factored out at year 10, how do I get the greatest return? And, um, I like stacking them heavy 90, 10 at the beginning. And especially with this scenario, you you physically can't um, with this specific carrier carry out a ninety ten ratio for the first uh, ten years. You'll have to drop down, and so that that is one thing to note. Um, typically, you'll have to drop down under uh, to more of an an eighty twenty ratio, starting at year six through ten. And so that's part of it, Kyle. Is physically you can't fund ninety ten for ten years. Um, is that because of the MEC limit, Joe, or just the uh, carrier-specific guidelines? That's the carrier-specific guidelines. Okay, yeah. so that's good to know because I've never actually seen that before. So that's, again, that's why we have a, a variety of different people come on here. Um, yeah. Usually in my clients' cases, what's personally owned, 80-20 is the sweet spot, but that's a good point that 90-10 is great in this case. But the trade-off is obviously you can't put as much in after that fifth year, but that's okay because, again, Joe has done 
an extreme level of analysis and due diligence and how to maximize returns inside both the policy and outside the policy. And you have to look at all of that on a net basis. And so yeah. those are the trade-offs you have to be considering. Yeah. And so part of the reason we dropped down out 150 and don't continue to do that is we want to make sure we've got the, the whole goal is by year 30. So I'll just scroll down to year 30 and kind of start at the end and then we'll work backwards. And then I'll probably explain some of the reasons why we did what we did. So the, if you look down here at the end of column C, it's not in alignment, but essentially total input into the policy during the, those 30 years was just over a million. And then the total um, interest we paid back. So this is true cost to the company is to 390 in this situation that is deductible. Just like you said earlier, Ryan, that's a, that is an ordinary business expense. We can totally duck that 390. Um, but essentially in total, we have just shot a 1.5 million that we put into this policy. And that'd be a combination of that's all principal plus all the interest we paid to have those outstanding loans as long as we did. And then currently at, if you look at year 30, total cash value is right at 2.5 million, meaning we've shown an overall gain of a million dollars just within policy growth, even after we paid that almost 400,000 in interest payments. And our That's ultimate goal wow. was we want access based on, so based on inflation, it takes $1.5 million to develop this orchard at this point today, but we're projecting inflation wise, we believe it's going to take 2.5 million to do the same project in 30 years. And so our whole goal was with this was we want 2.5 million in cash value by year 30. And so the cool thing is now we can basically redevelop this entire orchard without any additional cash draw from our investors. Wow. Um, so previously we'd all just kind of have a little champagne party and, uh, a good time and walk away, right? <laughs> right? And pulled out the checkbook again, like, hey, we loved it. Let's do it again. Pull out your checkbook. Um, now we basically have a completely self-funded and not just the 1.5 we originally put in, but actually 2.5. So a little bit better of an inflation hedge to basically go back in and redevelop this. Or if everybody wants out, well, we can buy you back out and you walk away with a, a lump sum of cash, essentially um, of what you brought into this scenario. Wow. So this is truly a 30 year investment timeline. I, that's so uh, brilliant, Joe, that yeah. you structured it that way. That's why you guys can see that it's so much more than just the policy itself. He had very specific numbers. You're, you're adding in inflation, which obviously is critical. That was kind of a hypothetical until the last 12 to 18 months. <laughs> but it's yeah. a very, very real factor. It and so I love that you thought about that. So I just um, I want to go through the rest of what you've got on here in the next few minutes of what we've got left. But I just want to make a couple comments. Number one, you did pay, like you said, $390,000 of interest in this pro forma. But assuming that you're, you know, I think a reasonable assumption is that if you're in the 30% tax bracket, the corporation, you know, when you add everything all up, if that was all tax deductible, then 30% of that is 117,000, right? So you saved 117,000 on taxes. So yeah. that brought your effective borrowing cost from um, the 390 down to closer to like 275. Um, and then you've got one uh, over a million dollars of tax-free gains in the policy. So if you take that number, the one million fifty-nine thousand and change, then if you plus that up by uh, that same thirty percent, if we're using that as your assumed tax rate, that would be tax equivalent in a taxable account to about one point five million. 
So now you've got the tax equivalent gain in the policy of 1.5 million plus the 117,000 of tax savings on the interest. What you're showing is a net gain of a million dollars there, Joe, on tax adjusted basis. That's closer to 1.6 million and a very conservative vehicle. So that alone, I mean, if, if you're just looking at inflation, um, which historically is averaged around 3%, that's probably going to be a lot higher, you know, um, for a while. So you have certainly uh, hedged against inflation and all the multiple other risks. And again, that's why it's it's not just what you see on the illustration or even a more detailed spreadsheet. There's these other factors that are really important to consider. And, uh, you know, for your kind of investors and this kind of business, Joe, taxes, as you know, you're very, very savvy on taxes. We both spend a lot of time thinking and planning around that. That is a really, really important thing that I think it just has not gotten enough press um, when it's designed and structured properly. Yeah, totally. Um, no, that's great. Great points, Ryan. Awesome. So just finish up here with giving us the rest of what those numbers you got down on there. Yeah, totally. So basically, we illustrated that outright again the premium. Um, you can see we, we stopped premium at year 26 in this project. Again, that's based on that 25-year minimum life cycle of a tree. And so we wanted to make sure, okay, when when this project's over, we don't want any cash flow to be against this, this structure. So that's why we cut it off where we did. We can run it out for that other five years if everything's going good and all the numbers still work. Um, the really cool thing is now this policy can basically restart. It's owned by the general partners. It's on one of their lives. And so it can just keep on rolling. So we just ran it out to year 50 again. So this would be essentially at project number two. So again, you, you don't see the whole back end of the whole orchard performer model, but it, essentially we, we get an average of a 25% return on our investment. And so by year two, again, we haven't put any additional capital into this project. It's still at the 1.4, but by year 50, we're just shy of 6 million we can borrow against showing a little over five, four and a half million dollar gain. Um, by 60, again, this is the really cool thing is it just continues to do it over and over and over again, right? Um, so we could basically run three or two full orchard cycles by year 60. Uh, we've got a little over 10 million in access, meaning we could basically flip out and buy three more orchards if we wanted to. Um, so we've seen a little over seven and a half million in gain. The really cool thing is by year 60, uh, the insured, he's doing pretty well, but he's probably getting close to the end of his run. Um, we've got a, you know, almost $10 million that's going to dump back into this corporation in tax-free gain to all these investors and their, their children by this point. Um, and that's just a, one of the most critical things as I look at businesses, we really try to build businesses for generations mm. and in ag, it's really easy to do because that's just kind of the normal. Um, but this is basically a three generation business that it'll just this funding vehicle right here is basically 10 million in liquidity. That's just going to keep funding businesses after business. So um, yeah, love that's that part. Amazing. Of so let me get this straight, Joe, <clears throat> by putting that money into this policy in this first deal, you have basically, because of the gains in the cash value, just by running the money through your banking system, instead of paying it out of a checking or savings account, you have now generated, again, not even considering the really, really healthy return of 25% net IRR right. over 30 years, which is just phenomenal, the compounding that happens. Not even in, like looking at that, just from the policy itself, starting off by overfunding this with just 10% of the capital raise, 
and doing that over that period of the five years and then dropping it down significantly, just the gains in the policy are now enough to do two or to do one or two additional deals. And of course, those are going to have their own separate returns that we're not showing here. Yep. And by the end of that, you've got a $10 million net tax-free death benefit to keep this generational business model going. And you've now done two or three deals where you would have only done one based on the capital that you ran through the policy. Absolutely. That is incredible. I mean, you can guys, you guys can see why we call this the infinite banking concept, right? You like just, too good to be true, right? <laughs> it, it really does seem too good to be true. And if you don't do it correctly, because if you guys have seen, you know, we haven't even shown you the beast spreadsheets that have gone into the planning behind this. We're showing you like the high yeah. level, you know, and if you have to do this correctly to structure the policies and more importantly, the overall you know, financial plan and strategy. But if you do it right, I mean, it truly is the hardest thing, I think, for you and I, Joe, because we met at the same conference several years ago when we first got into this. It was almost like the the, incredu the incredulous, like, how could this possibly be real? This seems too good to be true. And then when you look at it and stress test it, it just gets better and better. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, um, I would say both, right? It's It's not perfect. It's not the silver bullet. It's just going to cure everything. You still have to have a really good business plan in the background. Right. Um, but again, it's such a maximizing strategy that put on when you can layer it into something that's really good and it just takes really good and makes it amazing. There's, so. there's so many good principles to pull out of this episode. And I hope that everybody listening has, has done so looking at the delayed gratification as well as right. just the intentionality to build a plan that, uh, is 30 years at, at least, <laughs> and then it continues on and supercharges into the, the 50th and 60th year. Um, I think there's so much wisdom that goes into that. And especially in a culture that is all about having instant gratification, there's a lot to learn from looking through this spreadsheet with you today, Joe. And we appreciate your time so much as well as we want to honor it. And we just want to thank you for, for going into the numbers that you put together on the back end to to put your business where it's going to be in the future and allowing those of us to see this that might not have otherwise had the ability to fully understand how this could benefit us in our business. Yeah, I've learned a ton, Joe. I mean, I, I know infinite banking pretty well, but the way you're structuring this in terms of a multi-generational business model for investors and the general partners is, I mean, it's phenomenal. So thank you so much, Joe. I, I learned a ton today. So hopefully the rest of you guys did too. Again, I know this is a lot of information and numbers. Go yeah. back, listen to the previous episodes, rewatch it. It takes multiple layers of paint, so to speak, to really start to understand it. But that's what Joe and Kyle and I did. And because we did that, that's why we're doing what we do full time now, because it really is that compelling when we can structure it in light of the bigger picture of the investments and the businesses outside the policy. And Joe, you've done a phenomenal job of breaking that down. So thanks again for your wisdom, your experience, and uh, your time. Yeah, guys, such a pleasure, dude. Such a pleasure. So appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate every single one of you that's been listening to this podcast, and we look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Hopefully what we shared was valuable, whether it encouraged you or challenged you. Our goal is to equip you to make better financial decisions. So engage with us at wisdomofwealth.co. We want to connect with you and continue the conversation. Make an appointment today. Ryan, myself, or anyone else from the Wisdom of Wealth team would love to meet with you. We look forward to talking more. And again, that's wisdomofwealth.co. See you on the next episode.